if you are alone in a museum space, it can almost have a kind of effect that you might get, let's say, walking into a church mm. or, uh, you know, just any any uh, space that's, you know, bigger than you are and sort of created for a certain level of contemplation, which I think is really interesting because that is something that you, you really might not pay attention to if you're there, uh, you know, chatting with somebody else. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, as part of my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way, I chat with Stephanie Rosenblum, who wrote the 2018 book Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude. You might recall that Stephanie and I talked about solo travel back in episode 146 of Deviate. We dig deeper into that topic in this episode and explore the ways that going solo can deepen the travel experience in places like museums and restaurants. We talk about the ways traveling alone frees you from the expectations of other people and attunes you to your new surroundings. But we also talk about the task of savoring travel experiences and the ways you can cultivate your curiosity and get out of your comfort zone on the road. We talk about how any checklist-driven itinerary should be balanced by the more spiritual task of slowing down and savoring the experiences on that checklist. We talk about the games you can play with your own attention in a new place so that you can become more aware of that new setting. I start by reading Stephanie a chapter about solo travel from The Vagabond's Way. Let's listen in. So, Stephanie, the first time in the book where I quote you is the March 29th entry. It's called, Going Solo Opens Up New Possibilities in a Place. The epigraph is by you from Alone Time. It says, Solitude at its best is not about avoiding the world. It's about cultivating a different kind of participation in it. When you're not sitting across from someone, you're sitting across from the whole world. The body chapter says, in the 2004 interview anthology, A Sense of Place, travel writer Jonathan Rabin noted that for all the advantages of journeying with a friend or a loved one, going solo is his preferred method of travel. Traveling with a companion, you are too much of a self-contained world for the rest of the world to be able to penetrate, he said. Whereas traveling alone, everything happens. Traveling alone puts you in the position where you'll do almost anything to make contact with other people. Half of the point of traveling alone is that you get so lonely you need to talk to other people. Even when solitary travel doesn't yield new social interactions, the very act of encountering a place without a companion has a way of deepening the experiences one finds there. In her book Alone Time, journalist Stephanie Rosenblum cites a vast array of research that underpins how going solo can enhance the travel experience. In museums, solo travelers make a stronger psychological connection to the art. In restaurants, eating alone allows one to take things slow and savor each aspect of the meal. On the street, walking alone stimulates new modes of thought and deepens one's connection to new environments. Ultimately, traveling solo is less about risking loneliness than embracing solitude, which is a more dynamic way of being alone. Even when going on a journey with a companion, occasionally splitting up to explore a place in independent solitude is a great way to find new experiential possibilities there. So Stephanie, you wrote, you wrote the book on solo travel, Alone Time. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, obviously I agree. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, and I think, look, people have been retreating into solitude for centuries, right? So it's not a new idea, but what's interesting is that it works um, 
you know, it works whether you're doing it for yourself for like an extended period of travel for many months. It works if you're just going on a business trip and it works actually even if you're not going very far and you're staying in, you know, you're going on a day trip from home just over the weekend. Uh, and, and you know, whether you're doing it for, you know, sort of reflection, you know, to spark creativity, there, there are a whole host of benefits essentially associated with it. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how you came into the joys and challenges of solo travel personally, because I think we all start mm-hmm. traveling with our families, right? That solo travel isn't intuitive. We're in the family station wagon, literal or metaphorical with our family. <laughs> and then later, uh, solo travel is something we stumble into. So in, in your own experiences, yeah. how did you come to savor being a solo traveler? I, I think for several years when I was, you know, just out of college, you know, you couldn't always get someone to go places with you. I mean, you could, but it was, you know, not everybody agreed, oh, well, we all want to go here. This is the time that I can take off from work. You know, it's difficult to coordinate things like that. And I just felt like I didn't want to have to always wait for someone to be able to go with me for me to have experiences. So a large part of it was driven simply by the idea that, you know, I want to see the world or even just explore like beyond my neighborhood. And um, just because someone's not free at the same time I am doesn't mean I shouldn't do those things. So part of it was just, you know, wanting to get out there and see things. And then, uh, you know, I, some things came naturally, like some things I noticed, oh, like this is actually better when I do it myself. Uh, hmm. And then over time, I began actually researching it and finding out, you know, what, what, the, what the social science was telling us. Yeah, well, I want to get into that social science in a second, but I've been, I'm such a fan of solo travel that I've been doing it for yeah. so long that I forget about that convenience aspect that you don't really need anybody's permission. If you, tra- if you have travels that are, it's just you, then you don't have to sync anything up. Well, I think there are some of us who, you know, I mean, I, from a very young age, like I just also liked to play on my own, you know, like mm. I like to go off and be, and you were talking about, you know, being with the family and yeah, maybe you're going on a trip with your family, but there's always, you know, the classic image of course is, you know, the kid in the back of the car, like plugged into, you know, and well, in my day it was the Walkman, but you know, uh, Mm -hmm. so you can, it wasn't, that also translated when you weren't in the car and uh, like if everybody was just, you know, sitting, we would go to the garden or you'd sit around and play and, or even just at home, I'd go into my room and I found that it was really, uh, it sparked my creativity. It was relaxing. Uh, I just, you know, I enjoyed my time by myself. So that piece of it was a natural extension, I think, of just who I am. Is that, would you consider yourself an introvert? Um, is this, is there an introvert, oh, yeah, extrovert thing? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, you bet. I mean, I can perform, I can appear to be extroverted, but that is not really the case. No, I'm I'm in the same category. I think I'm naturally an introvert. Are you? Well, well, travel sort of forces me into a kind of extroversion that is probably good for me. Um, but I do seek uh, solo experiences, and it, it's interesting that you're talking about sort of seeking a kind of solitude, even with when, when you're with other people. And one thing you address in your own book is how even when you are on a journey with a companion, you can still find moments of solitude. Um, yes. I, I'd be curious yep. for you to talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think that this can, so I've had this experience either with groups of friends, you know, or if you're just traveling with one other, you know, pal or a significant other and, 
you know, maybe they have a special interest, like, you know, I really want to go to this, you know, uh, porcelain museum and, you know, maybe, and it's very nice to obviously like expand what you're interested in and, you know, do that with someone. But at the same time, you know, maybe you agree that you're going to go your separate ways for a few hours during the day and that, so, you know, your whole trip is not alone necessarily, but you're doing that. And I think, um, that's really delightful because you get you get to have the experience on your own and then you get that joy of talking about it with the person later you know you get to and that is also like the act of reliving what you did you know on your own and I also feel when you're traveling with other people it just allows you to have I mean it's a completely different feeling than when someone else is there because you're kind of in your own bubble the Mm -hmm. two of you and or however many of you there are so there's that you know, piece of it that happens. Um, And then there's also the piece like, you know, sometimes like if you have uh, a spouse or significant other and one of you has to travel somewhere for business, you know, and uh, the hotel rooms included. So like, why not go on something like that? And then the other person may have to be at a conference or, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, work matters, but you can go off and explore the city and see things. And it's a great way to, uh, you know, to just, you know, capitalize on life, like have that that moment for yourself, even though it's not a trip where you're, you know, you're alone from the beginning to the end. Yeah, this feels like a healthy strategy, even for people who, from the get-go, are traveling with a companion, uh, just because, just reminding people that they have permission to split up. They don't have to be connected yeah. at the hip the whole uh, the whole time. You know, I <clears throat> travel with my wife in Europe for the first time this summer, and it was sort of fun I think it was good for us as travelers, good for our relationship to just sort of give ourselves permission every day to go off and do our own thing. You know, she's more of a foodie, so she'll, she can spend hours in a, in a food market that I would be less interested in. Um, and it just, it just seems like regardless of whether or not you are going full solo or with a companion, giving yourself permission to be solo with a companion is key. Absolutely. And that also goes to your choice of companion, like someone who's going to understand that it's not has nothing to do with like not wanting to be with them or spend time with them. It's just I think it actually uh, enhances the relationship, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship. I think it gives you you know it, this this sort of wonderful time to uh, you know just separate and then come back together again and then separate and come back together again. It's really um, you know it's really it can be really interesting and 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 I've even done the thing where I've gone somewhere alone. Uh, during a trip like that, and then realize, oh, you know what? You have to see this. You got to come mm. see this. And I'll go back again with that person, and and then I see it. I experience it in a whole other way with that person. Yeah, there's almost like a scavenger hunt or reconnaissance metaphor here that you, you split up and you're, you're independently able to to really have some interesting experiences that you can then share with each other. If 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 not literally going to those places, then talking about them and sort of savoring the uh, excitement of the day together. Absolutely. Now, you brought in some research. Your book is full of research. I give three examples in, in my chapter. One of them is connection with the art in a museum. So what mm-hmm. is the argument for going solo in a museum uh, in such a way that you are actually more engaged with the art? Yeah, well, there's there have been a number of studies, like the Swiss National Science Foundation, uh, you know, did something on this museum. There have been studies in the, you know, the journal Museum Management, and a lot of what they have found is that when people went with other people to see an exhibition, they found it less thought-provoking and they were less able to enjoy the museum space than people who went alone. 
they also found that people who went, you know, with companions felt that the beauty of they couldn't experience the full beauty of the artworks and they couldn't connect to the art in the same way that they could when they went by themselves. So that that's, you know, one piece of it. And part of one of the a little bit of the thinking behind that seems to be that when you're going with someone else, it's a social experience, obviously. And so conversation seems to interfere with a visitor's, you know, ability to make a connection to the artwork itself uh, and to be emotionally stimulated by it, to have that sort of, you know, oceanic feeling, that sort of overwhelm that can happen when you really connect with a piece of art or just sit there and stare at it in silence. So it almost, and it's not to say that one is better than the other. It's just that there is a, you're getting a very different thing out of going with someone else than you're getting when you're alone. Yeah, I think it allows you to to uh, have a relationship with art, I guess, like to linger. Like if if a piece of mm-hmm. art, for example, or a historical object really captures your imagination, there's not the self-consciousness of your partner who might be eager to get to the vending machine or to the, the next room <laughs> of, of ex- exhibits. And there, and there are people who also like, you know, like if you go alone, like let's say you're a person. I remember many years ago there was a, a an exhibition at the Brooklyn uh, Museum of Art and they – I wanted to listen to the entire audio uh, tour and, you know, the people I was with had like zero interest in doing that. But I wanted to hear like every single word and it was – you know, and it becomes this like tension. So there's also that piece of it of like the pacing hmm. of going through it. Even if you, even if you know, it turns out to be something where you're not, you know, in love with everything that's on display. It can also, you know, when you're going by yourself, you control the speed through which you're you're moving. Yeah, it, it occurs to me that um, I mentioned some art in the book, and one was the Japanese conceptual artist An Karawa, uh, who was at MoMA, I think. Had I had a companion, I doubt I would have lingered in that room, sort of looking him up. And I would yeah. have had that chapter in the book that that, that literally yeah. sometimes your ability to engage with art uh, sort of is enhanced by the ability to just stand there and in this day and age, go on a, a Google search rabbit hole about this artist and his art that captures your imagination. Yes. Yeah. And, and also you may be more open to certain things when you're by yourself that you wouldn't if someone else was there because they just may, you know, move on or, or, or not be as interested in the same thing that you are. But exactly to your point. And there's a, there's another piece to this, which is beyond the art itself. You know, the, some of these studies have looked at museums as they refer to it as a restorative environment. So that even like, let's say you go to a museum of natural history and, you know, you've got dinosaur bones, fossils, which are really cool, but just the sort of the lighting and the space in the halls and museums and things can allow the mind to kind of drift and free associate. And so there has been research that like if you are alone in a museum space, it can almost have a kind of effect that you might get, let's say, walking into a church Mm. or, uh, you know, just any, any uh, space that's you know bigger than you are and sort of created for a certain level of contemplation, which I think is really interesting because that is something that you you really might not pay attention to if you're there uh, you know chatting with somebody else. So you also mentioned, or I also mentioned in the chapter, uh, restaurants dining alone can be an interesting experience. And of course, my my first association with this is thinking about being in junior high school and being alone at a l- lunch table and feeling really socially awkward. I think that there is sort of a there can be an awkwardness to eating alone because it's often seen as a social act from a very young time in our lives. Um, so what, what are the merits of, of eating alone <laughs> as a traveler? 
Yeah. So, and, and I agree. I mean, and I, I went through that, you know, myself, I think what for me, at least one of the, the things about eating alone is that I actually taste my food in a way that hmm. I do not, uh, when I'm, and, and, and not just the, the actual taste, but, you know, like the texture of the food or even if you're just going to have coffee, right? Because that's something a lot of people are more comfortable doing than a full meal. Um, but what, regardless, like the, you know, the warmth of the cup in your hand, the the smell. I mean, I even love like, or if you let you go get, you know, ramen and you see the steam coming off of, you know, the like, and that is, which is really beautiful. And it, there, in other words, you're having this sort of sensory experience when you're by yourself with the food in a way that you don't, because a lot of breaking bread with people is all about like the conversation and, and, and mm. sharing. And when you're alone, like it does, it really anchors you into what's in front of you. And, uh, and, and this goes into like the whole idea of just, you know, savoring something and going slowly and, um, and really making eating more of a, uh, a tactile and sensory experience than it is sometimes when we're just, you know, meeting friends for lunch. Yeah, it feels too that being solo attunes you to the placeness of a restaurant. Um, yeah, I, I'm just yeah. thinking like in things are so much more ritualized and aesthetically driven and slower in France, in a French restaurant, for example. And maybe if you're in Southeast Asia, in, in a smaller mom and pop restaurant where the whole family is working there, I, I think that being solo allows you to observe that actually the act of eating is culturally distinct in different parts of the world. That is so true. Uh, and that is, yeah, right. Because you're not looking at somebody else across the table from you, right? So you're like, you're observing everyone around you. You're observing mm. the environment. Maybe if you're sitting outside, like you're seeing the rhythm of the city and just the sounds and the smells. It's, it's yeah, you're really, as you say, like you're immersed in the place. Third thing I mentioned in this, this chapter is walking. And a, a, a quote that I have in another chapter of your book is, there's no need for an itinerary. Walk in the day arranges itself from the sidewalk. The best of the city can be had for free. Um, so that's under a, a chapter of mine called If in Doubt, Walk Until Your Day Becomes Interesting, which is a phrase I've been yeah, using since that. my first book. <laughs> uh, so yeah, walking um, and sort of sort of an, a, a counter itinerary driven way to be in the city. How does being alone allow walking to be a great tool in your travel toolkit? Sure, because, you know, to an extension of what you were just saying about the placeness, right? Like you you are, uh, this is the whole idea of the flaneur, right? Who's just mm. wandering without a destination. And actually you can have a destination. You can decide, okay, I'm in Paris and I'm over here and I, I want to walk toward, you know, uh, the Marais, but that's it. The rest is up to me. So, you know, you have, you know, maybe you know that and, and, and you'll make a big circle and come back to wherever you're staying. But you're experiencing the city, you know, it, there's a wonderful anonymity to walking around alone on a certain level. And just, you know, you, you're kind of a detective and you're, you're, uh, you know, just taking everything in and, and there's no pressure to sort of have a conversation about like, Oh, should we go here? Should we stop here? Are you tired? Are you hungry? You know, you just sort of let yourself, uh, 
wander. And if all of a sudden, you know, you're passing something or a park or a building just strikes you and you think it's really beautiful and you just, you know, love the way it looks and you can actually just, you know, you stop and you enjoy that. And there's no need to have this itinerary or checklist of, you know, 10 things that I must see while I'm here. Uh, And I think it also allows you to discover, you know, your personal interests Mm -hmm. that, when you're, you know, like, okay, so maybe you're passing like a little stamp shop or something, you know, and, and um, we'll stay with the Paris analogy, but like, yeah. it, you know, and look in the window and realize like, oh, this is something that's really interesting to me. And I, I think it, it helps you just find out like what you naturally gravitate to, whether that's architecture, food, you know, a, a certain kind of vibe in a place. Uh, and I think, so you learn a lot about the place, but you also learn a lot about yourself. And I think that can really be helpful and like translate into your life when you go home. Yeah, I like that you mentioned Paris because for some, for whatever reason, Paris seems to have things figured out pretty well when it comes to both walking and eating because the tradition of the flaneur goes back to the 19th century. Just the idea that you're walking not from point A to point B, but seeking experience. And then just the idea that it's not culturally weird to eat alone and take a long time doing it in a city like uh, Paris. I completely agree. And also it's one of the friendliest cities for solo mm. travelers in that way, because the, I, that whole cafe culture of, you know, sitting at a table, face, it's, I mean, it's designed so that you're facing the sidewalk, you're facing out. So there, like any of that awkwardness that people can feel, you know, going into a restaurant sometimes is really alleviated. The other big part that I quote you in the new book is right in tune with this. So I'm going to read this other chapter. It's about savoring. It's from August 30th. 30th. It says, pause to savor the best moments of the journey. And the, uh, the epigraph is from the Motorcycle Diaries by Ernesto Che Guevara. He says, At night we would look out over the immense sea, full of white-flecked and green reflections, side by side on the railing, each of us far away, flying in his own aircraft to the stratospheric regions of our own dreams. The body says, In attempting to illustrate the spiritual task of embracing the moment, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh recalled the childhood memory of taking an entire hour to eat a single cookie. I would take a small bite and look up at the sky, he wrote in his 1992 book, Peace is Every Step. Then I would touch the dog with my feet and take another small bite. I just enjoyed being there with the sky, the earth, the bamboo thickets, the cat, the dog, the flowers. I was entirely present in the moment with my cookie. In her book, Alone Time, journalist Stephanie Rosenblum uses Not Han's cookie story as an analogy for the way we might seek to savor our travel experiences. In an age when it's not unusual for a meal to be eaten with one hand while the other is posting a photo of it to Instagram. Savoring, which Rosenblum defined as, quote, actively aiming for the most joy to be found in a moment, end quote, is not just an attempt to prolong the joy of a good experience. It's a way to feel more fully alive by doing so. Part of the task of savoring the best moments of travel comes in shifting one's experiential focus. At home, we find satisfaction in achieving work and personal goals, but travel offers a unique opportunity to trade achievement for appreciation, to slow down and relish rapturous moments by embracing them with our whole being. Now, I I liked your thoughts in your book on savoring because I think I'm naturally a saverer, but I've never really thought about it too much. So how did, mm. how, did, how did savoring as a human experience, which I love, come into your intellectual radar? How did you decide to examine this aspect of travel? Uh, well, I think like you, I have, uh, some of it was natural, but uh, it really started because I was talking to different psychologists and sociologists about things like savoring. And I said, 
is savoring something that just happens or is it an active process, right? Like, is there, is there something that I should be doing, things I could be doing to encourage it uh, to, you know, and to sort of, you know, get more, cause, because the general thing around it, of course, is you you have to be present, right? You, like, you want to be in the moment. But that has been said in so many ways so often that in some ways it loses its resonance. And so uh, it, it turned out that I, you know, gotten onto a research by uh, a professor known as, uh, called Fred Bryant, and he actually researched this and laid out methods like ways that you can increase savoring and you know like just as an example he would talk about you know temporal awareness right which was to remind yourself like wherever you are whatever you're experiencing in your during your trip to like actually remind yourself that this is not going to last like that mm-hmm. your trip is going to come to end at some point and he said and and as much as that may seem like well wait why would i remind myself that it actually makes you very present it helps you sort of stop and say okay so where you know where am i like what so he there are and you know uh, uh, several things that you can do to basically identify the what's giving you joy you know in the moment and some of it was you know just like asking yourself questions like what is giving me pleasure right now in this moment? You know, like what will be gone when I'm no longer in this place in this moment? And and there are several things, you know, like that, which, you know, we can get into or not, but they, that's how it kind of got on my radar because I loved the idea of it, but I wondered, uh, is this something that you can, you know, is it an active process? And it turns out it is. Uh, is one of the techniques you mentioned in your book, uh, like narrowing things down to one sense, like sitting in a place and yeah. focusing on smell? Yeah, talk about that. It, it's funny. I, I actually assigned a version of that to my students in Paris this summer because... Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and I, I think I'd forgotten that that was something I found in your book. So wh- why don't you talk a little bit about that as an exercise, as one of many, but it's it's sort of a fun one, of if not forcing yourself to savor a moment, then compelling yourself to savor a moment by narrowing down your central experience of it. Yeah. So this again, and this is also Brian's research, and he he would refer to it as sensory perceptual sharpening. Hmm. Um, and it basically, uh, you know, it involves, you know, you're, you're heightening one, you're heightening the experience by focusing on only one of your senses. So for instance, uh, you might close your eyes, right? And you, so that you can fully appreciate like the scent of a warm baguette that you just walked out of a bakery or, with. Or maybe you're on a beach somewhere in, or you're in a forest and you close your eyes because all you want to experience in the forest is the, the sound of the wind rustling through the trees, hmm. right? And it, it puts you immediately, uh, you know, like in, in touch with the place that you are in a way that like, if you're paying attention to everything, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming or you mm. can't focus as well. And uh, closing your eyes is, is just one way to, you know, wait to do that. So uh, that that's what that particular strategy is. It, it's interesting that you have, you're a social scientist, you, you did some research on, on the art of savoring, but your example, which I also use is Thich Nhat Hanh and his cookie, which when I was reading mm-hmm. it, I, you, you sort of laughed a little bit. I think it's very relatable, that childlike sense of trying to stretch out the, the, the enjoyment of a cookie. Is there something childlike in the, in the act of savoring? I think it probably is because, you know, we, sometimes we just take for, like, we, we have so many experiences and we're seeing so many things and so much comes at us 
you know, walking around a place or just being anywhere. And there's something about childhood when you're experiencing all those firsts and like mm. you see, you know, you encounter something for the first time. And I guess that's partly why that sensory perceptual sharpening works so well, because you you're you're forcing yourself to experience something in a way for the first time because mm. you're experiencing it differently than you're used to on an everyday basis, right? And saying like, I'm going to experience this, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to not allow myself to, uh, you know, maybe I'll only touch this thing or I'll only see this thing or, or take away my sight. Um, there, yeah, so I do think in that, in that way, in that sense of uh, the wonder that is associated with childhood. Mm. Yeah, well, I, you know, you were saying that there's so many things as a child you're experiencing for the first time. In a certain sense, travel replicates childhood because um, you are, everything is new, or at least so many things are new. The language, the way, the way to get around, you're suddenly in this childlike state. So it feels like maybe it would lend itself to to savoring experiences. You know, when you were when you know, and actually, this is another technique that uh, has been linked to savoring this idea of that when you're experiencing a moment. Uh, you want to you want to kind of look around and take a like a mental snapshot and and almost in the way that a child would like sort of focus on not just oh the, the grass is green and but really looking like look a multi-sensory feeling right just like what is it what does it sound like what does it smell like uh, oh it, it's raining and was it hot and you know like the, almost the way a child would just sort of rattle off all the uh, feelings and and sensations uh, around an experience I'm, I'm curious about a couple different ki- types of savoring because I'm sitting in my office now I can see souvenirs and mementos I've had from my travels I can savor mm. my travels by sitting here now but I think there's also this importance to savor things in the moment where it's when it's happening on the road. I think oftentimes we're compelled when we see travel as a consumer act we we savor it afterwards in in a, in a certain sense more than we savor it in real time. And I, I think there's another Thich Nhat Hanh analogy of when you're washing the dishes, you should be enjoying washing the dishes because yeah. if you're if you're thinking about the the juicy plum you're going to eat tomorrow, then when you when you're eating that juicy plum, you'll be thinking about something else. So uh, what is the case what is the case for for really harnessing that savoring in real time on on a journey? I mean that's the fundamental like number one way to do it because you're you what you're trying to do is uh, you know have the present experience, right? And it it does seem uh I know that sounds vague, but it's it it, it when you think about it all the different techniques of savoring really rely uh, fundamentally on that of uh, being where you are and not thinking about like, what is the next thing or what did I do yesterday? Uh, you know, or we should have gone to see that. Um, and I, I think that really just has to do with, uh, you know, accepting the moment for what, because also not every travel experience is the way we want it to be, or not what it looked like in the photos or what you expected it to be. But I think, you know, I think a large part of this is curiosity. And I think that helps you be present and to savor whatever is going on, even if it's not what you expected. Yeah. Um, curiosity seems like, uh, such a good traveler's tool too. And you were talking a little bit earlier about how sort of our language of spiritual attention is so common that it's easy to say embrace the moment, but yeah, but then in, in real time it's a little bit of a different task, and so, so it feels like sort of a, a a word that's lower on the ladder of spiritual hierarchy. Like curiosity is is a great window into um, 
into that more spiritual state of, of travel. So much of what we know about travel is sort of seen in the itinerary or consumer lens mm. because that's it's it is a consumer act. We we, we buy vacations, um, but it's also it could also very much be a, a spiritual act. Not to be too woo woo about it, but uh, yeah. how how do you ride that balance between between travel as you know a checklist driven uh, yeah, list yeah. of accomplishments versus something that can be internalized in a way that's much more affecting, if less easy to share on Instagram. Well, number one, I try to make a point of like not sharing it on Instagram for that reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or, or, you know, which you, like often, like I'll, I, I actually, in my book, I mentioned a moment where I got to the Uffizi so early that I was the first person in uh, in the room uh, with the, the Venus and hmm. uh, Botticelli's Venus. And I was so shocked that, first of all, I thought I, I did something, like I inadvertently walked into the room and it was closed because how could this possibly be huh. happening? Uh, but it, it was happening. And I was so surprised that I was in there alone that I started immediately taking photos. And despite hmm. what I know, you know, because I was just like this, I have to, no one's going to believe this. This is unbelievable. And of course, I wasted the entire time that I had alone in there with her, uh, but by just, you know, taking all these photos and not just sort of standing before the painting, right? And like mm-hmm. letting, which is, and, and I was I obviously still able to do that, but it was a unique opportunity that, uh, and I always remember that because I felt that I, I allowed the technology and the desire to sort of, you know, share that or to say like, look, isn't this so crazy to overtake the experience. So for me, I have a sort of, I have a very, that's a very particular moment that I I think back to, and I don't want to do that again. So it is very helpful. But uh, so A, I try to stay off. uh, I mean, not try. Now I do. I don't do any social media in the moment or uh, when I'm actually in a place. I may take pictures uh, at some point, but I don't do it in real time. A. And B, before I go on a trip, I like to... uh, I like to make a list. I mean, I also enjoy making lists, but I'm, I like to make a list of everything that I might want to see, everything I might want to do. And then the same way, you know, you give yourself permission when you're traveling with someone to have some time to yourself. I give myself permission to not do anything on mm. that list. Mm. I just like to know what's possible. And then I say, you know, and maybe there's one thing that's like, I, I really want to go, I, you know, this museum is really important to me. Okay, so then that, you know, but everything else, it's just, I know it's there. I've done the research. And also that I find is very helpful because then in real time, I'm not like glued to a book or a guide or looking up, you know, oh, where should I eat? Well, you know, like, all, like I'm not wasting time uh, with my nose buried in research. I, I just, I have my, you know, I did what I did beforehand. And, um, and then if I'm there and somebody says, you know, oh, you really should try this. It's great. It's like, great. Then we're doing that. So, and I also find that doing that list of everything that's possible kind of gets it out of my system in a way that, Hmm. that whole desire to do everything. I sort of shed that by making the list. And then when I'm on the ground, I can actually be in the moment on the ground. Yeah, well, I think we're in an age now when information is so ubiquitous that it can, that information itself can get in the way of our experience of a place. Um, yes. And, and for this reason, when I was in Paris with my wife this summer, she's a big foodie. So she would look up restaurants that she wanted to go to, but then we would mark them in pencil on a paper map so that we weren't 
tempted to like try and soak more information while we're out in the, in the city of Paris that basically we sort of gave ourselves a, a digital fast with our old fashioned paper map. And we walked around that way. Um, and actually one thing we, we didn't do it, but when you, when you were talking about, um, your experience with, uh, was it Botticelli's Venus in, in the, mm-hmm. is it, yeah. In a way I wrote down certifying versus savoring because we, we live in an age when we certify things. It was, it's so amazing to have Botticelli's Venus mm-hmm. for yourself, but you, our instinct is not to savor it, but to certify it because, uh-huh. um, it, it just feels like that, that's, a, that's a strange balance, you know, that technological. And actually this is yeah. another thing I'm curious about because you touch on it a lot even though your book is not about technology, nor is mine, but I talk about it a lot because that phone in your pocket can hinder you as well as you, mm-hmm. as it can help you. And so how do you walk that line between certifying and savoring uh, travel experiences? Or, or are you still f- trying to figure it out? Well, two things. Um, one, I just wanted to mention, when you, when you brought up your point about how you got you uh, and your wife you know, marked on, the, on a map with pencil where you're going... I love that. And I've, I've actually told people to do that because, and you wrote a whole book about this, but it becomes, the map itself becomes a souvenir, right? Afterwards, mm-hmm. I just think it's like a delightful, and there's something also like when we're talking about being in the moment and savoring, holding a map, like these maps, like is it the tactile experience and like pointing and like, it's, I, I don't know. I find that there's a connection with place that happens more with like paper maps and writing on them and looking at things uh, it, it, that helps you actually be present um, more, you know, and, and to savor things more than just, all right, I'm on my digital. I mean, the phone is great. And, and two, an extension of that where I think the phone can help you uh, savor versus certify is there are certain apps now, you know, tracking apps where, and I understand this because I, I like to know where I've been and I like to know where I've walked. And especially if you discover some beautiful street, and I don't want to spend the whole time like, what was that little street? You know, and the, they, they'll track it in the background, you know, where you're walking. And I love that because it means like, hmm. OK, I'm going to leave the hotel. I'm going to be a flaneur. I'm going to be in the moment. I'm going to hit track on the phone, put it away and not look at the phone again. But I know that at the end of the day, if I want to figure out where I was or go back somewhere, like it did it for me in the background and it didn't distract me from, you know, what I was trying to accomplish by being present and not, you know, certifying everything. It, it, you know, and in that way, the technology can actually work for you. So hmm. I think that's sort of one example where it, where it helps. But I also think there's something with the certification, like the less that you, and this is difficult, but I think that the less you participate in the, the act of, you know, this certification and just, you know, like constantly updating. And I know that this is also for many people, part of work, part of their work, like part of what you do for your, you know, your livelihood. Uh, but I do think there's a way to do it after the fact that is hmm. just as effective. And I think also if you're clear about that and, you know, just say, oh, we're back from here and this, and then you can, you know, build in captions. And sometimes it can be even, you know, more useful to people looking because you can include, you know, meaningful quotes and things like that. But um, I find the the way that I walk the line with that stuff is, is to try to keep track of things in, in, in a way that I don't have to keep track of it myself, like in the moment that I have, you know, an app or something doing it for me. Um, and then I don't, I don't worry about sharing it with anyone in that moment. That's something that I could do later. 
Yeah, it feels like there is, um, again, there's that idea of savoring something in real time versus savoring it afterwards and, and documenting mm-hmm. something in real time versus, uh, is it Live mm-hmm. Trekker? Is that the, is that the Yes, app? I love yeah. Live Trekker. Yeah. It's also beautiful. It's really, it, it puts a thick red line, like wherever you've walked over satellite images of the city you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to use that more. I, I should have turned it on when I was in Paris this summer, uh, just because that is, yeah, it sort of absolves you of the need to know exactly where you are. <laughs> you know, you can, you mm-hmm. can find out later. It's it's funny, when I was researching my book, Souvenir, I went through the fifth arrondissement of Paris and just sort of penciling in every street that I walked down because I wanted to walk through every street in the in the in in that arrondissement. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing that for my book, Souvenir, that, as you suggest, that book became, or that map became a souvenir, that I have this map that's all penciled out in, in the fifth arrondissement. So it almost feels like there's another book here about little games we can play with our day uh, that sort of mm. allow us to, to, to experience travel in a, in a, in a heightened way. Um, it, it's, all, it's, it's funny that I, in a certain sense, I'm complaining about the abstraction of apps on your iPhone that help, but also hinder. And then suddenly I thought, oh, well, there needs to be a, a vagabonding app that gives people, you know, that gives them initiatives for letting go of apps. I, I think like this conversation is so baked in, the technology is so baked into how we have conversations with each other that it's it's hard to, to tease technology and the act of anything apart. No, it's uh, it's absolutely true. And, I, you know, I think also to your your point, you just reminded me uh, when you were talking about drawing your own map. Uh, many years ago, I was in an airport and uh, the I, I forgot who I was speaking to behind the ticket counter. And, you know, he happened to ask where I was going. And I said, oh, you know, it's like I'm going to go around Tuscany. And said, oh, I know a couple of places. And he, on the back of just some, you know, airline, like, tick, you know, flyer or whatever, wrote down, like, a couple of places to go, a couple, you know, a few, you know, wineries, some other things. And I save that to this day, even though I've gotten rid of a lot of things to, you know, just, like, clean, you know, clean out my uh, house. But mm. it's it's such a delightful memory from that. Just this piece of paper that a stranger wrote down, you know, some guidance about where to go. And to me, like, that is what it's all about. Like, I was I was on my own, and here's somebody who's just, like, offering a recommendation, who's from there, you know, in their handwriting, which is also, you know, a, another level of connection, right, that has nothing to do with tech. Um, and I, I don't know, I just feel like things, like, the more moments, like, and, and, and that it's just a funny thing, because that's something I really remember about a trip that had nothing to do with the actual places I went on that trip, like, it happened in the airport. So, yeah. it, it, you know, I, I think, like, again, this goes to that curiosity thing, I think, in, in terms of savoring, just realizing that you can have these delightful moments, you know, everywhere. And I think that, you know, like, on your on the app that you're going to build when, right. you know, the podcast is that, uh, you know, this idea of, um, it reminds me of like those cards that give out like today, you know, like strike up a conversation with a stranger, you know, there are, um, like there are, like games like that, those sort of things. And I think that that helps you like not only cultivate curiosity, but really again, like be in the moment where you are. I mean, it's just, it's a device. Uh, and now actually that I think about it, there's, uh, back to the Fred Bryant's research on savoring, he had a technique called the daily vacation, hmm. where every day, wherever he was um, in his daily life, he would take 20 minutes 
and allow himself to have some experience that would just be pure delight, like that was just for his enjoyment alone. And and he would set a timer and just, you know, and he said that could mean he's just like like thumbing through his father's old diary, you know, or, uh, you know, sitting in the garden and just like looking out at the flowers. But that he would and he would build it in and decide like what the daily vacation was going to be so that every day had this element of, you know, delight and and savoring. I think there's a relationship here between that savoring practice at home and travel, because a lot of what is joyful about travel or travel are these quotidian experiences. It's the guy in the airport who draws us a map. Mm. It's going into a convenience store and realizing that the products are completely different in Japan yeah. or in India or Uganda than they are back home. Um, yeah, so so it feels like this beneath the layer of, of of savoring is just the idea that any experience can be savored, especially in travel. That's what it is. And I think and I think that's actually a better what you're saying is a better way to say be in the moment, right? Is to mm. say just look at any moment as an opportunity to experience a little bit of delight or awe or, you know, whatever. Like I mean, like you're saying all right, Japan, like walk into a stationary store, like hmm. done. That's the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like you know, like different types of paper, different, you know, the way different pens, right? Like that's just a del- like it, that's a tactile delight, but it's also just so interesting to see, like you said, like what are people buying? Um, every, I think that's a way to be present without it seeming like such a woo woo thing, which hmm. is just like be curious or be open to any opportunity possibly being like the best part of your day or the best part of your trip even, right? You don't know where, you don't know where that's coming from. Like you may think it's coming from, oh, we bought tickets to this blockbuster exhibition, but maybe it even happens like when you're talking to someone on the line to get in. Hmm. Yeah, no, when when I took my parents to New York uh, about a decade ago, one fun experience was waiting in line for the, uh, for the boat to the Statue of Liberty. And some guy, he was like an acrobat. He was a busker, basically. He was doing a performance. And yeah. my parents were just delighted by it, you know, that maybe in New York, if you get used to that. But standing in line for the for the uh, the the ferry out to the Statue of Liberty was his, well, actually it was to Ellis Island, but, but it was as enjoyable as the journey itself because suddenly there was this entertainment, you know, and you, you give them a dollar, five dollars, and it's, it's something you don't see back home. So I, I like the idea of giving yourself permission to make even standing in line be something you can savor. That's right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, we're both travel writers and oftentimes as travel writers, we speak to the, um, to the consumer aspect of travel, because that's an important part of it. You need to know where to go, how to get there, what to buy, where to stay, things like that. But as someone who's also written about these slower, more experiential aspects of travel, what can you leave us with? What kinds of strategies and tools um, can listeners employ when they get to the end of the podcast and start thinking about their next journey in a way that goes beyond what to buy and where to go? Yeah, and I think it's it's it will be different for everyone. It's a really personal thing about you know, and also how are, how are you using the trip? You know, what do you want? Like, and also, how often you get to get away because it's more difficult to, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say you know, wander around, don't always plan everything. But if this is like your one big chance to go to place X, you know, there's a different um, expectation on it. But I. 
I think, and and that is why I'm a big advocate of, I use Evernote to just, you know, go in there and make these lists and I'll, I'll use, um, it has a tool so that, you know, if you're like, let's say you're browsing great, you know, travel websites and uh, you want to clip, you know, articles about things, you can send them right directly into a file. There are other programs that do this as well. That's just one I use, but you can. I use Scrivener. Yep. I've used Scrivener too. Yeah. And you can create like a master file of your trip. And and also I will say, and I've written about this, that the very act of doing that, even if you don't do one thing on the list that you or stay in any of the places that you looked at, the act of anticipating going on a trip, um, researchers have found to be like, it boosts your happiness mm. in the moment, like the this pleasure, you know, this anticipation. So that, that in itself is worth doing. Uh, but I actually find that to be one of the biggest tools for me because it it just you know sometimes like once you know everything that's possible it's much easier to see what really matters to you and i think um in terms of tools like you, you just try to stay really open to whatever is happening and if you get somewhere and it's a beautiful sunny day and you were really planning to go to that museum but boy does it look beautiful and they've got these parks and you know i i just said this to someone the other day i said it's it's completely legitimate and worth your time to just decide that, you know what, I'm here in Italy and I'm going to just sit out in this, at this table and I'm going to, you know, take out my, my, uh, you know, my, my journal and write and enjoy the afternoon just sitting here and watching people. And I think that it's more, the tool is really where you position your mind, not so much, Mm. you know, something you have, although I am a big fan uh, of the app, you know, Live Trekker, because again, that is something that if you, if you want to know like exactly where you are, you don't want to spend the whole day uh, keeping track so that you remember it will do it for you. So there, and there are other, there are other things like that as well. It feels like there's a sense to which it's sort of giving yourself permission to follow your heart and your instincts a little bit, regardless of itinerary. Yes. And that's also something I've said to people, you know, when people have asked me, like about safety and things like that. I say I say the same thing. You get right. You have to you have to like listen to yourself. Like listen to your intuition and right. But following your heart, it sounds, you know, like I don't, you know, but it's true. Like you just you have to like do what you love. Like that is also the point of having this time away, like this little time out from daily life when you take a trip is to go pursue something that you love, not something that, you know, oh, I'm supposed to go see this, right? Like I have to, I I have to go here because it's, it's the thing everybody does. Well, no, you don't actually. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Stephanie Rosenblum's book, Alone Time, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.